The thing about aging is your relationship to time and people changes. So when I left, my nephew was a baby. My sister didn't have any kids. My sisters were in college or a late teenager. And now I go back and I spend time with my sisters, my nephew. I see this other generation coming up. I think about my own aging. Do I want to do that here? Who's going to be here? Maybe I will retire in America. And then, oh my God, did I pay into social security long enough that I could even get medical? Like these are all boring things, but they get increasingly important as you get older. And I didn't you know, you're just, you're not thinking about that in your 20s. And you don't even, I mean, I didn't know I was going to stay this long. So that is a tension I constantly live with. Welcome to Flourish in the Foreign, the award-winning podcast that celebrates, elevates, and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad while exploring living abroad as a pathway to wellness. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American woman with Trinidadian roots, a business strategist and consultant from Atlanta, living and thriving in Valencia, Spain. Hey everyone, welcome to Flourish in the Foreign. I'm Christine the host and creator of this here podcast. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I appreciate you so much. I'm super excited for this week's episode. You're going to love it because I said so. I don't know. I think you're really going to like it. So you let me know if it's true or not. If you're not already a member of the Flourish in the Foreign Buy Me a Coffee membership, you're definitely going to want to. If it's within your budget, please come on down. If not, look, I still appreciate you listening to the podcast, sharing the podcast. It means so much to me. I hope you all know that. All of your support, all of your love does not go unnoticed at all. And I just appreciate y'all for being here. All right, on to the episode. Season 5, Episode 10. Today's episode features Eleanor Mayerhofer. In her 25-year design career, Eleanor has done everything from book compositing to designing mobile apps to methodology and agile process design for global creative teams. She's worked on projects for clients such as Chronicle Books, Rizzoli, Vodafone, BMW, Audi, and more. She left her corporate life in 2010 to start her own online e-commerce business selling printable stationery. Her work was noticed by Goop, Martha Stewart, The New York Times, and Pottery Barn Kids. For the last few years, she's been helping expat business owners in Germany get their websites launched in a day. I'm super delighted to bring this interview with Eleanor to y'all because this is a story of evolution and longevity and truly cultivating a life well-lived abroad. But I'll let Eleanor tell you all about it. My name is Eleanor Meyerhofer. I am 51, and I live in Munich, Germany. I moved the day before Halloween in 1999, so I guess it was that, that makes it 24. It's going to be almost 24 years. 
I asked Eleanor to describe her childhood and if the environment and manner in which she was raised planted the seeds of her eventual life abroad. I grew up, I was actually raised by my dad from the time I was two. And I was born and raised in L.A., like L.A. proper. Nobody in my family was particularly interested in world travel. My mom always talked about it as something she wanted to do. And (laughs) I don't know if this is like the power of suggestion, but my mom used to live near Venice Beach in L.A. And she would sometimes we'd go down there and she'd take like we'd go to the psychics on Venice Beach and we would do astrology and all these things. And one time a psychic told me, oh, you know, you have Sagittarius in the ninth house. This means other cultures. Travel is going to be really important to you. And you might live in other cultures. Did that put a seed in my head? I have no idea. I think probably a more pivotal moment was in my 20s. I had the opportunity to take a trip to Nicaragua with a group. And there was a moment on that trip. We were on the back of a pickup truck and we were visiting like a project there. And it really struck me how big the world is. And I knew in that moment, presumably I would just be on this planet once and I wanted to see as much of it as I possibly could. And that kicked off, like after that, I got the chance to go to India. I had the chance to go to Cuba. And legally at that time, a friend of mine was making a documentary. And so I got to go along as part of the crew. And and that was it for me. I just knew I just wanted to see the world. And so it was probably more that moment than anything else, that first trip. I asked Eleanor if she was interested in attending university. And if so, where did she attend and what did she study? And of course, if she had the opportunity and interest to study abroad. I feel really lucky in that I never got a bunch of pressure to go to university. And it's not like I'm the first person in my family. My grandfather went to Cal, the philosophy major. But I come from a family of small business people and creatives, painters, writers. And so my dad was like, you don't have to go to college, but you can't sit around here and do nothing. That was his attitude about it. And so I went to junior college for a while. And then I realized I was working at a restaurant as a hostess at this little town where I was doing junior college. And I think it's really crazy in our culture that it's like you're 18. It's like, what do you want to do for the rest of your life? I have no idea. (laughs) I don't know anything as an 18-year-old. But after working, you know, having the part-time job at the restaurant, it was like a tourist town, I realized, okay, if I don't figure it out, this is my life and I want more for myself. I think I was like a psychology major because, okay, I like to talk to people. Again, what do you know when you're 18? Nothing. I sort of really gave it some thought about if I, if tomorrow I had a kid, if I had to pay my rent, if I had to really support myself and not live with roommates or whatever I was doing in college, I just was like, I want a skill. And so I decided that I wanted to learn graphic design. And then I started taking just like art and design classes at junior college. And then I eventually transferred to the Academy of Art in San Francisco. And that's where I got my bachelor's degree in visual arts. It was all like kind of fortuitous because I graduated in the mid-90s again. And this was right when literally the internet came into being. And that and the ground zero for that was San Francisco. So I got out of school right when all these startups were happening. And they they weren't even really even teaching web design. So if you were a designer, you could just go into that industry and 
there was like jobs and money everywhere. And I just graduated at the right place at the right time and learned the right thing. I asked Eleanor to walk us through her journey to move abroad. And if you've been listening to the podcast for some time, you will all recognize, as in most stories about moving abroad, it is not a linear process. And like most things, it's about an opportunity being seized upon. When I got out of school, I was freelancing at all the startups that are around. So I would make a little pile of money and then I'd go on a trip. And then I'd come back and make a little pile of money and go on another trip. But I very much felt I didn't want to skim the surface of a culture as a traveler. I wanted to really live somewhere. On the other hand, I had just gotten out of school. I was lucky that I didn't have like a ton of debt, but I also felt the pressure to get my career going. So a lot of the places I had visited were not places where at that time, I mean, there was no digital nomad. Like that whole thing was not happening yet. It was dial-up era. So I didn't have this idea that I can go anywhere in the world and work. So I was torn because part of me would have just left for Central or South America and just let that experience wash over me. But I was also like, all right, I'm in my mid-20s. I'd have to get some kind of career going. And that those were not places where I felt I could do that. So I was living with a bunch of roommates in San Francisco. And this guy from Munich moved into our apartment. And his mom was American, but he was also, so he was coming back to America to study. He had grown up here in Munich. And so then you get all these people visiting from Germany to see San Francisco, sleeping on your sofa, checking out San Francisco. At the same time, there was a guy in my design school who was from Vienna. And him and his girlfriend were our neighbors in San Francisco. And we became good friends. We were studying the same thing. So there was this like German-Austria thing happening. And I remember the first time I had been to Europe, I visited him here in Munich. And I was telling him about web design, which was new at the time. He had studied packaging at the time. So that was, you know, you can do package design. And I was telling him, I remember I was in a beer garden saying, this is amazing. It's like the easiest thing in the world. You just do everything in Photoshop and it's great. It's Because if, if you were designing in print, that was very stressful at the time. It was more permanent. It was just a different way of designing. He said, well, you should just come here and we should start a web design business, which was ludicrous. It was just totally because I spoke no German. He was in Munich because he had gone back to Vienna, but you had to do military service. His mom's from Munich. So he was hiding out from the Austrian government so he wouldn't have to do his military service. And so I just needed the teeniest of excuses to be like, okay. So at that point, I had just got out of this like going nowhere relationship. And I was probably 20, I guess I was 26, something like that at the time. And so it was sort of in my mind, it's now or never. If I ever want to live in another country or experience that, I have to do it now before like my life settles here. I was living in the Bay Area in Oakland at the time. And so I just put some stuff in my parents' garage. And, you know, the thing is that as an American, you do have an advantage where you just get a tourist visa and you don't have to do anything. You can just move over. So I did that. And I just thought, what's the worst that can happen? I'll go there, see what it's like. And then if it doesn't work, I'll just come home. That's like how I got to Germany. And Germany, it was not like top of my list or Munich. I just kind of wanted to go somewhere different and experience living in a different culture. 
I was curious to know what Eleanor's family's response was to her decision to up and move to Germany. They were pretty perplexed. I mean, it was everything from, doesn't it get really cold in the winter, to are you going to be the only Black person there, to what about your pat? Like, the whole thing just seemed like, what? And I think because there aren't big travelers, in my, they just, I don't know where I got this from, but they didn't have it. So it was just like a real head scratcher. But they supported it. I don't think any... I certainly didn't know, and they didn't sign. I'm sure they assumed, like, well, she'll be back in six months or whatever. It was just some silly idea I had. I asked her to describe to us what it was like landing in Germany, not to visit, but to live. To be honest, I mean, I remember the bag I packed, and I remember getting on the flight, and I remember listening to the Euro techno music on Lufthansa <laughs> that they piped in through the thing. But I don't know that I remember the actual day. I think I was just moving forward. It was kind of one step in front of the other. What I more remember is the first year and how once the euphoria of being in a foreign country and being in Europe wore off, it was really hard. And I, it's more like I remember that the loneliness of that first year rather than the day. So at first it was really exciting. I traveled a lot, but I was just, and, and this idea of us starting a company was totally silly. So we like set up this office and we had like one client that was like a wine company for like wine labels, but I was like not making any money. Plus, and it still is today, the housing market was very difficult. So I was like living in a temporary rental apartment. It was just really hard. And I had no job. Like you can't, I'm sure this is still true today. You show up as a foreigner, no job, no nothing. Nobody's giving you an apartment. And especially in Germany, they like want to see your work contract. They want to see pay stubs. There was also no real social media. So there were a couple of bulletin boards to meet people. And I went to like some expat events. And then my best friend actually came and did an internship because she ended up marrying that guy that moved into our apartment in San Francisco. That marriage didn't last very long. But so she was here because of that. So that took some of the edge off. But it was just a lot of, and it was stress because I wanted to stay. I decided that I wanted to at least give it a year and my tourist visa ran out in three months. So I was going to the immigration office and I left out, I there are a lot of horrible horror stories, but the woman, my my unmarried name is Ray, and the woman responsible for R was really nice. And she kept saying, you've either got to get a real job or you got to get married. And she just gave me three more months on my passport, which don't ask me why that happened. I have really no idea, but it did. But it's hard. It's hard when you don't know the language. And it's a little bit chicken egg in Germany anyways, because I was taking German classes, but a lot of people here speak English. So I would start and make an attempt in my crappy German, and they just switched to English. So you wouldn't be really forced. You could be kind of lazy about it. And so you kind of also found yourself in this bubble of making, and then you'd make friends, but a lot of it was transitory. People were coming and going. And you just I just felt like a tumbleweed. And then it wasn't until, and then I did get actually a kind of real job, but the guy didn't realize how difficult it would be to get me a work permit. It was at a small design agency. And I was just like, I either need to get like a job that can 
give me some like permanence and a real residence permit or I need to just go back home. And so the first year was a lot of like trying to learn German, not really having any deep friendships, trying to find a place to live, wondering what the hell I was doing. It was just a lot of like confusion. (laughs) But I think the other point that I think is important to make is at that point, at that age, in your late 20s, there was no obvious place to go back. That's what was hard because nobody had yet settled down into their lives back in the States. And I had friends in LA. I had friends in San Francisco. I had friends in New York. My parents had long since moved out of LA. There was no, it's like, where would I go back? There was, I didn't have a community of people in one place. And so it wasn't like, I'm just going to go back to Oakland because people had moved out of there. Everybody was in transit at that point in life. So there was no, like, I think if everybody had been in one place and I had a community, I would have probably just gone back, but that wasn't the case. So I stayed. The biggest thing that happened was I got a corporate job and that changed everything. And I got that, I think a little over a year. There was a big American agency. That was when web 1.0 was maturing. So all these kind of IT consulting companies were bolting on agency services so they could do like end-to-end, front-end development and deep technology. So there was an American company called Sapient, which was a very hot company at the time. And they were setting up their continental Europe operations in Munich. And I walked in, there was an American recruiter in there. And he was like, how is your German? And I was like, not so good. And he was like, oh, it doesn't matter. And I just got this job. They were like, They were just setting up, it was like 12 people in the German office, half of who were American. But it was a legitimate operation. I gave them my passport. Two weeks later, it had a year-long work permit. I had my work contract. I got an apartment. It was like night and day, like having that corporate structure. It was like my first real corporate job because I had been freelancing at startups and stuff before that. So Just professionally, it was a big deal. And also for my life here, it was a big deal. And plus, at that time, it was like kind of had a startup vibe, even though it was a bigger company because they were just starting up that local office. And so people were coming from the London office, from the San Francisco office. And it was really fun those first couple of years. It was just like we were all traveling Europe. I suddenly had a network and community of friends. And So that was the first time it was like, okay, I can stay here. And plus I was traveling. I was working in London. I was working in Cologne. I was, we would take trips to Italy on the weekend. It was like living the dream and like I had a good salary. So that was like a total game changer. And the first couple of years were great. And then I realized I didn't like that job at all. But then I decided I was still in the same thing of like, where do I go? And I decided that I wanted at least to have the option to stay long-term. And if you work for five years, you will get basically a Greek card in Germany. So I was hanging on to that job for those five years. Plus, I also wanted to freelance and you can't freelance. You know, there was just all this visa thing. And the five-year mark was like, once I did that, I was almost like a citizen. I could do whatever I want and I didn't have to worry about any visa or immigration stuff anymore. And it has to be said, life in Europe, you might experience this in Spain as well. It was like, when I thought about going home, it was like, wow, if I freelance at that time, I couldn't get health insurance. If I got a job, I would only get two weeks vacation. 
it was going to be insanely expensive. I also didn't understand how much this meant to me as someone who grew up in LA and San Francisco. But a friend, when I moved here, gave me a bicycle. And I was like, oh, I, I don't ride bikes, but thanks. And I I have no car here. I realized, oh, there are elevated bike paths everywhere and you can live your life without a car. And to me, as silly as that sounds, it was huge. It's such a difference in lifestyle, not having a car. I just And I'm working in London. London is great, but it's intense. And Munich is a nice balance of city and nature, which again, I'm from LA. I didn't understand that I appreciate that. So I really started to, by that time, I had fully adjusted to the European lifestyle. So going home was like a harder sell. A, starting from scratch and just life in America, it can be a real rat race if you're in a city. And I still think this, like we could not have the quality of life we have here in any American city. We would both have to just pedal to the metal corporate job. We have, I have a six-year-old daughter. It's just a non-starter. And I know a lot of friends that like, even if they're German, they lived in the States and they've come back and they're like, we can't afford to live there. We can't, even if we wanted to, we can't go back there. So over this process of getting my green, well, it's not called a green card, but like basically a green card. Funnily enough, I decided, I think it was around 2006. So I had been here maybe almost just at six, six-ish years. I decided I'm staying And at that time, I knew I was going to quit my corporate job, and I didn't know how long I was going to stay, what retirement was like. So I bought a little rental property, and I had to do it while I had the corporate job because you can't get a loan without – then we'll give it to you as a freelancer. So that was like my commitment to – I'm going to stay here, maybe not forever, but for a long time, enough to like think about like my financial future, et cetera. And funnily enough, in the process of doing that, I actually met my husband. So it was like that psychological commitment. Germany, like many cultures and countries, they have their stereotypes for sure. Keeping that in mind, I visited Germany, but I've never worked or lived for any substantial amount of time in Germany. I was really curious to learn about the German work culture, or at least how Eleanor had experienced it. Because if I'm frank, what I imagine it to be is not the most accommodating, I would say. So I asked Eleanor to fill us in on her experience. German work culture, not for me. So uh, the thing about working at this company, which was like a digital consulting company, at the very beginning, I had been at like on one account, which was like, it was a telecommunications company. It's T-Online. It's like also T-Mobile. And at that time, it was very German, very conservative. And I remember just feeling like, yuck, yikes. I'm sure you know in Spanish, you have the formal and the informal. Like everybody, it's all in the formal. You're calling everybody Mr. and Mrs. And I was just like, what the hell is this? Not my jam, not my scene. I was like, not, I don't want to do this. But because I'm a native English speaker, With that exception, I was always put on international clients, which is a totally different thing. So I was at another telecommunications company, but they were bought by a British company. So the whole team was international. And I think whatever that psychic said was true. I loved international environments. Like everybody, people were from all over the world. They had little flags of the languages they spoke on their desk. Totally different vibe. I was in not much in like traditional work culture, but what I saw of it, it was not for me. 
So I managed to kind of escape that. Now, having said that, I don't feel like my German ever got, it got pretty good at one point, but I never felt super proficient that I could go in and command a meeting. But it was the inverse in international companies because usually I would be in meetings where almost everyone except myself was speaking in a second language, English for them. But I was a native speaker. So it was very easy to go in and be confident and in those situations, like advance and perform and all that stuff. But I do wonder if I had ever gotten like to a level where I felt super confident and super fluent in German, if my career trajectory would have been different. I don't know because of those cultural issues. But anyway, so I I actually ended up staying at that company 10 years just because I was in a kind of this hamster wheel of, I had a very good salary there. The work wasn't creative, but I was also learning a lot. And if you go in the design world, if you go to a smaller agency, you might be doing cooler work, but you're going to take a 30% pay cut. And I wasn't really down for that. And freelancing was also just like, how am I going to get started? Like, how am I going to build a client base? But it was also right before I first started dating my husband, I had a health crisis. I just thought I had a bad cold, but whatever, I had like pericarditis. It's when there's too much fluid in your heart sack and your heart can't be. Anyways, I happened to be working in Miami at the Miami office and I had to be hospitalized and my dad flew out and I knew like, okay, I have got to get out of this. And I eventually got like a role that didn't require as much travel. It wasn't so demanding, but that was the beginning of the end and my exodus out of corporate life. And I had an idea at that time to sell printables on the internet. This was, again, 2006, 2007. And so that was like my time where I was like, okay, you only live once. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's around the corner. And so I started this online business selling printables where I I learned a lot. I learned a lot. Let's put it that way. And I did quit my job eventually. It took another couple of years, but then I quit my job. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And if you have, please support this labor of love because it is labor nonetheless. You can support this solo indie podcast by becoming a member of the Flourish in the Foreign Buy Me a Coffee membership, where you can subscribe to support the podcast on a monthly basis. You can also give one-time support via Buy Me a Coffee as well. And you can do either one at buymeacoffee.com slash flourishforeign. Support this podcast by writing a review on whichever platform you listen to the podcast. And if you listen on Spotify, you can also leave comments on each episode and even answer some of the poll questions I've created for certain episodes. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends and family and even the colleagues you kind of like. This podcast continues to exist and thrive due to listeners like you. Thank you so much for your continued support. Now, back to the episode. Yeah, so I told you about the printable business, and that was an interesting experiment. So I launched that business, and there was just a few years where I will say, like, I was in the desert professionally after I quit that corporate job. And then also I got married, and then I wanted to have a baby and went through infertility and all this. So I did that business, and I got, like, success, and I did make some money 
And I got like my products placed in like big outlets, but I never really could live on it. So a lot of my friends that I had worked with at the big agency had gone up to other agencies. So I had a pretty good network here. So I could pick up contract work. So I was doing that for a couple of years, not loving it, but it was like, you know, money. Um, But then after I had my baby, I realized I really didn't want to do that anymore. Because at the end of the day, I think for me, a core value is just like freedom to control my schedule. That's really, that is the first priority for me. And I had always toyed with the idea of like having a web design. I hadn't done hands-on web design in years at my other job because I used to do project management and other stuff. But I had been doing it for friends and family and it was like fun with these tools. I used Squarespace. I was like, this is easy. This is fun. There's not 8 million people making decisions and, and then brand people coming in at the end and blah, blah, blah. It was just fun. You make a little website, you're done. But I never wanted a client-based business because I just had a lot of mindset issues about, oh God, then you're going to have to manage clients and drum up business and everything. The idea wouldn't leave me alone. So I started doing it. You know, your first client is always yourself. So I was like, I think I want to work with expat women transitioning out of corporate. (laughs) So hmm, who does that sound like? So I did a couple of projects for friends and I was like, oh, I think I could do this, but I wasn't sure. And then I got a big tax bill because my working had been so sporadic when my baby was little. And so I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to start this website business. So I did it. And I got my first client right away. It was like really serendipitous. And she's a great client. I just did my third website for her. And I really put the pedals to the metal in COVID, which was weird. But I kind of first started out just delivering websites the way I knew how and running into a lot of the concerns I had just from my experience at an agency with like scope management and getting clients. And then I found a one-day model where you have a productized service and you do like a launch in a day. And that really turned things around. And I'm still doing that, but moving more into digital strategy. And the one thing I've really learned is like niching down is really important. And I kind of noticed that a lot of my clients were expats, not necessarily Americans, but a client I had, she's originally from Nigeria, but living in Hamburg or a woman from Portugal also would have, like, I just noticed I I, probably because I was working in English. I was like, I'm not going to put anything in German. I'm just going to work in English. And so I was like, well, maybe I'll focus on expats. And then I drilled down more and wanted to do expats in Germany, just because it's easier when you niche, you know who to market to. And I also, I'm in a mastermind. I also realized when I was talking about it, like my friend was like, you are like glowing. And I realized I really wanted to get back. These were my people, non-Germans in Germany. You have a shared experience. And I have been living my life. And when I looked up, there is just this whole ecosystem of influencers. And like, there is a young woman from Vietnam who has like over a million followers. And she's just like talking about her life in Hanover, you know? And there's just, there's a lot of people don't know after America, Germany is the most immigrated country too in the world. And there's a lot going on right now with, because there's also a huge labor shortage. So Germany has to, they're trying to, they've built up a whole university hub. If you are in a lot of countries, you can come get a free education in Germany in English. So they, they are actively trying to recruit global talent here because it's an old country. So it's a really exciting time. And the, the podcast came about because 
Of course, a great marketing tool is getting on podcasts that serve your niche. There was no, there's like a few that are like living in Germany as a foreigner and ha ha, and it's hard to buy bread, but not like business. And there are a lot of business things. What can you do with the blue card visa? What can you, how do you deal with GDPR? There's a, there's a lot of very niche specific topics to explore. So it was one of those things where like the podcast I need to be on doesn't exist. So I guess I'm going to do it. It's half. There are maybe like 75% passion project and like 25% marketing. But but so far, I'm enjoying it. It's a lot of work, though. I don't know how you do this. Oh, my God. Dating abroad. It is the most popular question. It is. And so I was really eager to ask Eleanor this question because when she moved abroad and was out here in these dating streets, it was completely different, right? There was online dating, but there wasn't apps. And so I was really curious to really get her perspective on dating abroad. I am so glad I got out before when I see these things, I'm like, these poor kids. Oh my God. It's Yeah, it was a kinder, gentler time of dating. You know, there was online dating. So there, and people then were a little sheepish about being like, I'm on one of these online dating sites. And I did that. But I also like have to say, German guys, there is a cultural difference. And (laughs) I knew I could never be with some guy that's just been here his whole life, has never traveled. I knew I had to be with an international person. I had one boyfriend who was a good friend of mine, roommate, and he was like half British, but his mom was German, but he also grew up in London. So it's like he was a, he was kind of German, but not really. I went on online dates, most of which were pretty lame and didn't really result in anything. I was talking to my husband last night because his company, they're just doing like everybody back in the office. And he's at the company that I used to work with. That's where we met. And I said, you know what? I think if you're young and unpartnered and unsettled, all this remote stuff is not good. Because as much as, and in my last several years when I was in corporate, I was working at home because our team was like part in India. My boss was in Boston. I didn't need to go in the office and I had to write a lot. But you would go out, you would meet people, you would be on projects. And I just, all these, I mean, I'm really, you know, dating myself here, but I just feel like, don't people, aren't there other ways to meet people now besides these apps? It just seems like... I don't know. I have a lot. I could say a lot about the apps and everything and how I think it's taking like a commodity capitalist model to its horrible extreme. Because I got really serious. Like before I met my husband, it was like, okay, operation job apartment was finished. That was operation partner. And I like read every book, like from Dr. Phil, whatever, dating book. I read it. And I read one book that was really good. This is before apps. It was called Unhooked Generation. And it was by this woman who's like not a psychologist. She was like Oprah's communication director or something. But she talked about like 10 factors that she noticed that were keeping, and this is really speaking to my generation, like people from partnering. And she said it's like an open market idea about dating, that it's just this endless marketplace and you have this list of qualifications and you filter out a lot of good people by having that mindset. And that was when there wasn't even apps. And that influenced me a lot of just like, keep an open mind. Don't get so fixated on these whatever 
has to be this way, have to be that, have to whatever. And another thing too, I don't know if they have these anymore, but a big thing was like after work parties. It was just like you'd go to work and then there'd be these parties and people would come chat to you. They just, there was just a lot more mixing and going on. Yeah, I'm out of the games. I don't know what it's like when you go out anymore, but that would happen. It wasn't as formal in the past where somebody would call you up and say, I'd like to take you out to dinner on or whatever, but you would go out and chat up people and get chatted up and stuff would happen. But my husband, I mean, I kind of always knew just because of my personal temperament, if it's going to happen, I can't know it's happening. (laughs) And so we just worked together. And when he, when we met, we were just colleagues and we were, we got placed on the same team. And I did take deliberate measures. I was very unhappy with my job. Like I said, it wasn't my, I wasn't like trying to make VP. I didn't care. I just had a job. I was, didn't have great ambitions for my corporate life. And I wanted a partnership, but at the time I was traveling all the time. And I was like, if I keep going like this, I will not have a community. I won't have, I won't find a partner. I won't. So I like took strides. And I told my supervisor, like, I want a project in Munich. I do not care what it is. I need to be home. I need to be somewhere where I have a chance to set up my life so that so that there's some opportunity for that. So I made some deliberate changes in what was happening. And that is the project. It was a terrible project. It was my last project, like client side of that company, but it was where the project that I met my husband on. And he had spent two different years abroad in the States. Um, he had done a, a high school year in Michigan and then a college year in Georgia. And so we would talk about that. And he was a really nice guy. He was, had a, I mean, I just wasn't thinking about that. And we just got to know each other without any dating weirdness or anything like that. And then we had our company Oktoberfest. And I don't know if it's an urban legend, but there's some statistic floating around Munich that 30% of relationships here started Oktoberfest because it is just, it's not what I'm talking about. When I first went to Oktoberfest, when I first got here, I was like, I don't know about this man. The Germans in a tent, a lot of people. Now I'm married, we just go for the kids and stuff. But now I think it is fantastic. It is a very international festival. And the whole town, I mean, it is just like mating season. You go there, everybody's wearing this dress called a dirndl. It really, like people from all over the world and then people are wearing lateros and you, everybody's drinking beer. The vibe is good. I think those inhibitions come down in a good way and people chat each other up. You're just sitting there. It is I'm like, if you're single, go to Oktoberfest. We had our company Oktoberfest and he was like showing his interest. And I was like, what's going on? And then my friend said, oh, he broke up with his girlfriend. And then it just went from there. So then we just started dating. I asked Eleanor to describe some of the realities, some of the surprises, and perhaps some of the obstacles navigating her intercultural marriage. I think in any marriage, there's the culture of your family, and then there's your culture. And sometimes it's hard for me to tell what the difference is if it's like when we, and we are different. And like, fortunately, I told him he's German, he's white. So I was like, you better show your parents a picture of me before they go there, just so they have some expectation. The race thing was a non-issue. 
And this is, again, where I feel like being American kind of offsets things because my father-in-law, he's passed on since, but he was a huge Americanophile. He was a child after the war. He remembers GIs throwing chocolates. He just had all these great associations with America, and I was a part of that. So that aspect was not an issue. I come from a big multicultural LA family where you can't get a word in edgewise at like family gatherings. And it's usually fun. Sometimes there's big fights, all kinds of things happen. That is not what a family is like, or at least my husband's family. They don't talk about stuff like all these. And again, it's like, is this German? Is this my husband's family? It's sometimes hard stuff because I know other German families that they do, but it there's just differences like that. And also, I'm urban. He grew up in a small, a teeny tiny little town. So it's sometimes like, okay, is this like he's from a small town? And, and also, like he says, I worry about things too much. And I'm like, my parents got divorced. I grew up in Los Angeles. Like, Nothing bad ever happened to you in your little teeny tiny village in Germany. Like, you just grew up in this place. Like, nothing horrible happened in my childhood. But it's a it's a different way of growing up. Sometimes I just think, yeah, I grew up in a completely different environment than you did. And also, I think with Germany's history, that war stuff still impacts a lot of, I mean, we all have our ancestral histories with us. And that does, that is a factor here. That that generation, I mean, my in-laws, they were children after the war. But all that, like my father-in-law's father was in a war prison and came home. The men were all messed up. That's all in there. Again, it's hard to sort out what the different factors are. But I'll give you an example Christmas. Christmas, and every American I talk to will say the same thing. Christmas in Germany, it's like this, it feels somber. They they celebrate on Christmas Eve, and it's kind of like the same thing every year. And I, again, I am from California. It's loud. We drive from Northern California to Southern California. We stop at In-N-Out. Everybody's in there in their pajamas eating hammers. <laughs> it's just so different. And so what I like to do here, if we don't go home for Christmas, which we don't really anymore, is I have a big open house on Christmas Day and invite like all my American friends. I put a big spread out. It's lively. There's music. We talk. My mother-in-law came and she's a very nice person, but this was like another planet to her. She just didn't understand this way of celebrating all my American friends are like, thank God you're doing this. We came back from like the quiet German Christmas. So there's like those kinds of differences. Motherhood in Germany. If you have been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that I have a compilation about being pregnant abroad and also motherhood abroad. So if you haven't checked out those episodes, I encourage you to scroll back and to check those out. Motherhood is such a interesting experience, I imagine, because I am not a mother and I am child-free by choice. I really admire my guests that are mothers and I respect and I uphold their experience so much. And what I found in doing this show is that 
The experience of motherhood, which I think we can all agree is not monolithic, but it really is quite varied depending on where you are around the world, what resources are just standard and basic, and what the societal sentiment is towards pregnancy, motherhood, and child rearing. It really varies from place to place, country to country, and it has been incredibly eye-opening for me as a woman without children. So I, I had to ask Eleanor, what has been her experience navigating motherhood in Germany? So I came to motherhood really late with lots of fertility treatments. It must be said, I don't want anybody to think like you could just magically have a baby at 44. You can't. Sometimes you do, but that's a miracle. So it's hard because I haven't had a baby in America. This is the only place I know motherhood. But all I can say is it has been incredibly positive. And I cannot imagine doing it in the States because you just get so much support. It's the same old story. Everything's free. You get a midwife. So after you have your, I mean, you never see, like when I talk to my friends in America, it's like, you do not see a bill for having your baby. You get the last eight weeks of your par your pregnancy is this thing called Mutterschutz. It's it's like mother protection. I don't know what you would call it in English. You don't work, but you get paid because you shouldn't. The idea is you don't need to work those last two weeks, two months of your pregnancy. And then you get 14 months paid parental leave, which you can split any way you want. It's capped. I think it's capped at 1,800 euros. But it's still, that's like money. When I hear like at six weeks after, you got to get back to work. If you're lucky, if you even have that. So I just had this magical first year of, like I said, that you get the midwife, you get a midwife. Yeah, I have my baby. You have it at the hospital. And then you go home and the midwife comes. You can have her come every day until you stop nursing, theoretically. But she comes, she just ma makes sure that you're okay, checks on the baby, sees how things are going. And, you know, when you first have a baby, you're like, <laughs> what do I do? So that was wonderful. And I didn't have family here. So that was incredibly helpful. And just, but there's so much free support. So I went to a nursing group. Where you just with other moms? And of course, there's so many international things if you're in a city. So like a lot of them, some of them were German speaking and that was fine too. You get support for nursing. You just, you can just enjoy, if you want to, your first year of motherhood without financial stress. Now you can look at this a different way where it is much more culturally conservative here. So I have a friend from Sweden and in Sweden at like, there's different in France and Sweden, they have that baby and they go back to work. And like in France, my understanding was like, they're not big on breastfeeding. So my Swedish friend just says like, it's so conservative here. They want you to stay home. They don't want you to go back to work. They make it hard. And so that's serious attention there. But I was like, fine to stay home. I went through a lot of time, baby. I was like, fine to just put whatever career stuff I had going on, business stuff on hold and just enjoy that year. You know, my sister lives in L.A. She had a baby. She works at a university there. 80% of her paycheck goes to childcare. Like, it's just, you know, she doesn't want to drop out of the workforce because you get a penalty. Like, that, I don't know how anybody does it. I just, it's all, I mean, here, it's like, 
it costs 250 euros, but you like get until the kid's 18 child money. So you get like 200. So it's sort of all kind of one. It's, it's essentially free. Another thing I'd say is when I got here, whatever I was, 23, 24 years ago, it was much less diverse. And I remember then thinking, I'm not going to stay here and have kids because I don't want a kid to be in such a homogenous environment. That has radically changed. And I'm like very pleasantly surprised. My daughter just started elementary school. I feel like her elementary school reminds me of the one I went to. I grew up in like the Hollywood Las Vegas area of LA. And at that time, America had not self-segregated as much as it has now. It was really, it was a true melting pot. It was glorious. And I feel like it not is, I'm not going to say it was like LA in the late seventies or eighties, but it is much more, you look at diversity in a different way also, because there's a lot of Eastern Europeans and class and all this, but it's just much more than I thought it was. So I'm very pleasantly surprised about that. There has just been a big change in the last 23 years than when I first got here. Sacrifice and grief. I usually pair both of these experiences together when I ask my guests. And I'm not sure why, because they are definitely two different emotions and experiences. But I have found that sacrifice brings about something of a grief, no matter what that sacrifice might be, and that the exploration of grief is really so vast and profound. Grief is so much more than honoring and mourning a passed-on loved one. It is a grieving of things that could have been, should have been, and the like. It's so complex, and I hope to explore these subjects in more depth later on in the podcast. We will see. But back to Eleanor. And so I asked Eleanor how her experience of sacrifice and grief has affected her time abroad. This is... The things, if you're younger, I mean, the, the vantage point as I, that I can offer as somebody who's older and been away longer. When I was in my 20s, I was not thinking about my parents getting older. I was not thinking about what it meant to see the entirety of my family once a year, if that. And also how expensive it is to pack up and go. I mean, it was different. It was just me and you could find a cheap flight. But now there's three of us and we have a dog. And it's not cheap flying to the States every year. We just went to California for two months. Because before my daughter starts school, you get locked into this school schedule and you could only travel in the school holiday time. And I go through this thing every time I go home. I, You could say, yes, for, from a lifestyle perspective, from raising a kid, like going back to America as a non-starter, but my whole family's there and I love my family and I miss my family. And like, sometimes I'm like, why did I do this. <laughs> the thing about aging is your relationship to time and people changes. So when I left, my nephew was a baby. My sister didn't have any kids. My sisters were in college or a late teenager. And now I go back and I spend time with my sisters, my nephew. I see this other generation coming up. I think about my own aging. Do I want to do that here? Who's going to be here? 
maybe I will retire in America. And then, oh my God, did I pay into social security long enough that I could even get medical? These are all boring things, but they get increasingly important as you get older. And you know, you just, you're not thinking about that in your twenties and you don't even, I mean, I didn't know I was going to stay this long. That is a tension I constantly live with. Luckily, I do have two sisters that are still in California. My youngest sister is pretty close to my parents. Oh, and she doesn't have kids. So I'm like, you know, you're going to get stuck. <laughs> with this. It's, it is a, and you get to this point where I will, I'm thinking about getting my citizenship, but I can't say like, I'm ever, I'm not going to be German, but I also don't feel 100% American. I'm kind of always in observer mode when I go home. And it just kind of just set up this complication as you get older. And I know some people, I talk to other people and they're like, yeah, I'm just staying here. I took my, my uncle in the States. He's, he's my father's sister's husband. He's originally from Japan. And I asked him, I said, do you ever feel like you're not really, he's been in the States, you know, his, since he was a young person, like you're not really Japanese anymore, but you're also not really American. And he was like, no, I'm 100% Japanese. So I was like, okay, well, <laughs> glad you got it all figured out. So that is the grief is that I'm like split in two places. And there have been times where I felt like, no, I'm here and that's good. And it's Germany all the way and whatever. And then there's a time, which is the time I'm in right now, where I feel more conflicted about, here's a weird thought exercise. Where do you want to be buried? And that, like, when I think about that, it's like this, you've split yourself in two, basically. And that's weird. Soft life, best life. I had recently heard someone say that they don't like soft life because it just promotes consumerism. and. I think that is a very shallow interpretation of soft life. It also seems very convenient. <laughs> I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I do find it very interesting that when Black women have access to something, all of a sudden something becomes very gauche or it's the trend is over or what have you. Not over here at Flourish in the Foreign because I believe that you all understand, regardless if you've been listening to the podcast for a while or not, soft life is so much more than an aesthetic or a consumer trend. It is embodiment, fully. An embodiment of a life that is soft to you, which is not devoid of heartache or quote-unquote hardship, because we all must evolve. We all must move. But soft life is always the best life, and I'm going to stand on that. Okay, so I asked Eleanor if Black girl soft life is a concept that resonates with her, and if so, how, in fact, is she living a soft life? Yeah, actually, it resonates a lot. And a big part of it for me was that pivotal that heart operation that I had to have when I was, whatever, 34. I'm a pretty political person. So it's really hard for me to look at that removed from, like, capitalism. <laughs> uh, I do, I mean... Germany is a free market economy, but I think especially in America, you cannot, I think the concept of what is enough is different here. 
And for me, it's still a city. It's still, a, like I said, a market economy. It's very easy to look around and see what other people have. But I think for me, what I saw, okay, lighting, all those other things. But if you want to have a life of ease and soft, you really have to examine what is enough and constantly work on yourself manufacturing these desires and redefining your idea of also what wealth is. Wealth is time. Wealth is health. Wealth is the freedom to do what you want. And you don't need a million dollars to be free. You can create a life for yourself that is spacious without having to have a zillion dollars or work a hard job and all that stuff. My husband, during COVID, they asked everybody like at his level to take a 10% pay cut. So I was like, okay, but go on a four-day work week. And then when everything COVID ended, we like made an assessment and I was like, yeah, it would be good to have that money, but I'd rather have the time. I'd rather you pick up our daughter on Fridays. And like, what is important here? Not that extra money in the longer day. It's like having a simpler, easier life. And I think that's something that's easier to do here. I asked Eleanor if she had a mantra, an affirmation, a lyric, a scripture that anchors her in this chapter of her life, a, a mantra, a motto that she lives by. And this is what she said. Not particularly, but I just read a book. So at my age, you also start getting very focused on finances. I read a book by a woman named Tosha Silver called It's Not Your Money. And it's re- it's a kind of spiritual book. It's around the topic of money, but she, this is nothing new. My mom used to say, just give it over to God. And it's the same thing. You read a bunch of books and you realize, okay, they're all saying the same thing. And she has the principle of offering. Whenever it's like there's a situation or something that's stressing me out or I can't resolve, I'm just like, okay, offer it. Just accept you can't control everything and you just have to give. It doesn't mean that you're passive, a passive actor in your life, but there's just something you just have to let the universe work out and you trust that you will be guided to the right action. And then for whatever it is, like I read that book, that was the entry point, but it's really child rearing everything. It's okay. You got to just show me how I got to deal with this situation because I'm not sure. It's just about riding the tension between surrendering and trusting that you will know what to do. So not being passive, but also letting go. Wellness. I asked Eleanor, what is her personal definition of wellness? And how has that definition but more importantly, practice of wellness evolved in her over two decades living abroad in Munich, Germany. Well, I alluded earlier, like growing up in LA, the Bay Area, I would not call myself an outdoorsy person. But living here, like Munich is a, I think it's one of the cities that has some highest ratio of green space to people. We live right in the middle of the city. On There's a big river that runs through it, a lot of green space. We have a dog. I am out in, I'll call it nature, like a really big park, let's say that way. But it's a natural. With our dog on the bicycle, I am like convinced that has so many 
psycho, spiritual, physical benefits that if you just say like, oh, I ride my bike all the time in the park a lot, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but it is. And it's also really safe here. Like, so the kids all walk to school by themselves. They ride their bike by themselves. Children are way more independent. They just go to the park. It's safe. So it's safe. It's green. And for me, wellness, again, it, it's all tied up with that enoughness, living in somewhere that feels nurturing and getting that nurturing from nature, but also living in a place that is, I, I'm a city person. I cannot live in the suburbs as like not interesting to me at all. But I feel like here it's a right mix of being in the middle of life, but also getting that regeneration that you can get from being in a natural environment and getting to nature pretty quickly because you can be in the Alps on a train within an hour. And also Germany, they have a very deep connection to nature and also wellness is a big deal here. And like you can do it on any level. You can do it on a budget to super luxury, but there's wellness hotels everywhere. You can go to the mountains and stay in a little very modest pension and go out in the snow and walk and go in the sauna. And that is not looked upon as indulgence. It's like, of course you need to go out and do wellness and have nature. And in fact, yesterday I was reading, I forgot about these. There are these things and they're free. Your health insurance pays for it. If you are a parent or a, yeah, a mother and you're feeling burnout, you can go on these paid trips to the seaside or the countryside alone or with your child for three weeks to just avoid being burnt out. And you get one every four years. That is built into the culture here that you like need to take a rest. And I feel like it comes back to this, you know, Americans live to work and here people work to live. I do think that I have really internalized that. And that's part of the reason like it's hard for me to think about going back when I look at how much everybody's just stressed out and working and money and college funds and all of this. It's like, I just can't go back to that. This season, as a final question to my guests, I asked them quite offhandedly, what is something that I should have asked them? Or what is something that you wish people would ask you about your experience abroad? Or some unexpected, unsolicited advice for all of you? And honestly, it's a question that I wish I would have asked all of my guests for the very beginning because it has been so fruitful and so interesting. Uh, what can you do? Anyway, here is what Eleanor had to say. I have noticed with some people, I will say, if you still hate it and are complaining after two years, you need to go back home. That's not a great, but I just see this. And a lot of time, this is with, this is not the term you're supposed to use anymore, like a trailing spouse. Like it's hard. It is a much harder proposition if you are somewhere not on your own volition. But if you don't make it through that hump, you are probably, I don't want to say never, but it's going to, I think you're just going to have a generally hard time with it. But the question to ask me a lot right now, what I'm thinking about is what has living so long out of my home country taught me about my home country? Because I realize it's actually quite a lot. What do you notice about America now that you've lived away so long? I just feel like it's such a shame that we are so polarized. Like, I feel like if I were queen of the universe, I would make every American 
get out of the country and see how American they are. And for better, for worse, for all of us, we are a friendly people. I really do appreciate that. This last trip, we are a friendly people. And I, we got a lot of problems, but we also have a lot going for ourselves that I think it's hard to see when you're in it. Thank you so much, Eleanor, for sharing your story with all of us. If you would like to keep up with Eleanor, you can via social media. Okay, it's my name, which is long. It's E-L-E-A-N-O-R-M-A-Y-R-H-O-F-E-R. So you might want to do the 15-second rewind for that one. And that's my .com. That's my website. And... Same thing on Instagram, but where I spend most of my time is LinkedIn. And that's just my name, Eleanor Meyerhofer. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. If you'd like to learn more about this guest, please check out their show notes page at flourishintheforeign.com slash episodes. Be sure to grab the Move Abroad with Intention guide to not only aid in your leap abroad and making sure that it is successful, but also if you're already abroad, to keep you engaged and to keep you accountable as you cultivate this new life abroad. I've also curated a playlist of sorts that goes with the guide. I made a whole list of episodes of this podcast that I think will be really helpful as you complete the guide. You can find that list in the description of this episode. And I'd also suggest that you grab the Build a Business Abroad guide if building your own business abroad or taking it abroad is something that interests you. It's not for everybody, but for those of you that are interested in it, I highly suggest you grab that guide. And I've created a playlist for the Build a Business Abroad guide as well, which is basically just season three of this podcast. Season three of this podcast was a mini season all about building a business abroad. Be sure to check out the Flourish in the Foreign blog and the Flourish in the Foreign bookshop powered by bookshop.org, where you can support local bookstores and flourish in the foreign at the same time. Check out my list of books to help you move, live, and thrive abroad. Make sure that you are subscribed to the Flourish in the Foreign YouTube channel for when I drop new videos and follow the podcast on Instagram and TikTok at Flourish Forum. You can also follow the podcast on LinkedIn at Flourish in the Foreign. And of course, subscribe to the podcast via whichever platform you listen on and leave a review. As always, big thanks to Zachary Higgs for producing the music of this here podcast. Remember, it's not about moving abroad. It's not about being abroad. It's about flourishing abroad. So go abroad and cultivate a life well-lived. See you next time. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. The next day I went on a hike with my girlfriends and I told them what happened. And I said, I'm changing my plans. This is where I'm going. I feel like something's gonna happen to me there. I feel like something is waiting for me there. And my friends, since they know me well, they're like, yep, yeah, go do it. Awesome. We love it. 
text us when you figure out what's waiting for you there. And so that's what happened. After four years in South Africa, I did a brief stint at home and here I am on a bus from Mexico City to a town where I know no one and know nothing about. And I'm happy to be able to share with you that I was 100% right about going. San Miguel, in looking at my time there, I feel like I accomplished two years worth of life in eight months. And it was so clear from the beginning that this is where I was meant to be. 